coming Thank again. You. It's really funny because I was going to say one poor person in this building has had to put up with me for f- almost 40 hours this week. And now it's the 41st hour. <laughs> Abigail was in a class with me this week, so we, uh, yeah. All right, I'm not, not texting. I just, like I say, I have to have my time up or we'll never end. Um, I am. I'm excited to come back sometime this summer. It's the next couple of weeks, and we'll be talking about some cultural issues, uh, primarily things like atheism and beliefs and different that sort of thing. I'm pretty excited about it. Dr. Taylor and I were talking about it. It seemed like something that would be relevant. So today, though, we're going to be in Second Kings chapter 22 and 23. Chapter 22 and 23. So if you want to open your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 22. Last time we were together, we studied King Manasseh. And so today, when I was going to come this time, I hadn't really thought about, you know, what, what should we do? What should we be aiming at together? And it, it occurred to me as I was thinking about it that it would be good to continue on and study uh, his grandson, King Josiah. So you have King Manasseh, and then his son is Ammon, and Ammon will reign, and then you have King Josiah. Manasseh was a very bad king. There was nothing good about Manasseh, except, remember at the very end, he was released from prison, and he turned back to the Lord, and he tried to get the idols out, but uh, the people didn't really follow. And so our story is going to pick up today with the life of his young son, King Josiah. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to open up by telling a little bit of a background, a little story of Uh, what it would have been like in Judea at the time. So let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, God, for today. Thank you for blessing us with a place where we can go, to where we can study your word, and we can gather together to worship you and to praise your name. I pray, Lord, that today you would give us a strength of mind and a humility of our soul, Father, to learn and to grow from this passage that we'll be studying. I pray, Lord, that I would be clear, and I pray that the text uh, would be strong through the Spirit in the work of every, uh, working in everyone's heart today. In your Son's name we pray, amen. All right, so today we're going to tell a story, and like any good story, we're going to have a prologue, and we'll have an epilogue. We'll have a couple of parts to the story, so if you're used to reading stories, that's what we'll do. So right now, we'll go ahead and start with a day in the life of a Judean boy at about the year 642 B.C. This is just, I'm just making this up here. Imagine what it would be like if you lived in 642 B.C. in Israel and you were a young Israelite boy. You'd wake up and like the typical young boy, our Judean lad would have awoken up with the equivalent energy of a modern nuclear reactor. There'd be no waking up and dragging his feet or hitting snooze on his hourglass alarm clock. Oh no, our boy, like many young boys, would jump right out of bed ready to go on an adventure and play with some toys. Out the door and into the city, he'd run around and find things to do. He'd quickly change his clothes and head out the door to see what's been happening in the big city of Jerusalem. Imagine that he walked through the streets that morning. He would likely smell the smoke of the sacrifices coming from the temple. But these were no sin offerings or guilt offerings that would have been prescribed by the book of Leviticus. Oh no, these would have been offerings to the false gods that had been set up in the Judean temple by the great king Manasseh that he would have heard about. 
As he walks through the markets, he would have glanced up and noticed many different kinds of idols being sold. Some of them would have been uncomfortable to look at. He probably would have looked away. And then as he's walking through the city, he probably would have passed by the Judean temple. The temple that Solomon would have built. The grand and glorious temple of the Jews. But in this day, the temple would have been in disrepair for years. In fact, as he looks up, he probably would have noticed another large section would have shown some cracks, and perhaps another hole would have been created by those cracks. As he looks at the roof line, almost all of the overhang would have probably been fallen off. As he looked at the outer wall of the temple courtyard, he would have noticed that the top is no longer straight and true, but it's rather leaning one way or the other. And with the chunks missing at the top, it probably looks more like the outline of a mountain range than a nice flat wall for the temple. He would have continued through the streets, seeing what he found, and as he walked through the streets on his morning adventure, he would have seen many worshiping Baal. Baal was the storm god of the Canaanites, and that's the ones that they worshipped. He was also the god of agriculture and fertility, so probably most of the farmers and the landowners would have been Baal worshippers. And as you know what they say back in that, uh, that century in uh, Israel, where you see Baal, there you see Asherah. Asherah was the fertility goddess and was the mistress of the god Baal. Our boy knew all about Asherah. After all, he had seen the Asherim pole in the temple, the one that the great king Manasseh had set up long ago. But it was also uncomfortable to look at, so he would look away. He would continue his stroll through the city until he got to the city gates. Now, as he walked outside the city gates, the air would be nice and fresh. The smell of plants and flowers would fill his nose. This was the best time of year. The grass was actually green. In time, the heat would turn the grass brown. As he continues through the countryside, he would see high places that dot the hills. Smoke would rise as usual from these high places. There was probably some pagan practice or worship action going on. Maybe it was a sacrifice. Maybe it was something else. Now our little boy, like most little boys, has probably stayed out too long, and he's probably going to be late to get home. As he looks up in the sky, he now notices the sun is almost at noon. And you know what happens if you're not home for lunch. Mom gets very angry. So our boy would turn and hightail it back to the city. Now this last leg of his adventure would have been the worst. He was about to pass the valley where they worshipped Molech. This was the valley where the sacrifices to Molech would burn and it would smell terrible, especially if the fires had been going all day. But worse than the smell of a burning baby was the sound of their cries as they were being thrown into Molech's altar. He tried to block out the sound and think of something else as he walked by. Finally, our boy arrives back at the city. He goes through the gates and he sees the palace in the distance. Isn't it grand? Isn't it wonderful? As he walks closer to it, taking in the view, he noticed there's a man talking to some of the guards out front. It seems like the talk must be somewhat angry because the conversation gets louder. Pretty soon, the young boy notices the guards begin to make threatening movements with their swords. And so the man quickly leaves in a hurry. Our boy, his adventure now at an end, decides to walk directly up to the guards. The guard turns to the young boy and says, Hello, Prince Josiah and moves aside to let our young prince enter. Now, that's all obviously made up. That's not in the scriptures. But I'm just trying to imagine what it would have been like for our eight-year-old boy, Josiah, to grow up under the rule of his great-grandfather, Manasseh, 
and then his father, Ammon, or grandfather Manasseh, and his father, Ammon. Now let's talk a little bit about some recent Judean history so we know what's been going on. About 100 years before our eight-year-old boy would ascend the throne, the northern kingdom of Israel would go into captivity at the hands of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were horrible, brutal people. And when they took you over, it was not going to be pretty. And so the Judeans would have known about this. It would have been about 80 years ago. And likely, Josiah would have been told stories as a young boy about what happened in the past to their northern relatives. The last 57 years in Israel would have been wicked government. Manasseh ruled for 55 And he was the worst king of Israel. Now, he did have that little section at the very end where Assyria released him and he came back and he tried to do what was right. But it was too little and it was too late. And when he died, his son Ammon takes over. Ammon was thoroughly wicked, just like his father, but he never did repent or turn from his evil ways. Ammon was so bad, in fact, that he was assassinated. Now, Josiah would have likely been six years old when his, or eight years old, sorry, when his father was assassinated. Imagine what that would have been like for him as a boy to realize that someone had murdered his father. Imagine what it would have been like when he discovers later that it was one of his father's own servants who killed him. We've had assassination in our own country. Some of us are old enough to remember, and some of us have just heard the stories about President uh, John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. That time in our country was tumultuous. It wasn't stable. It wasn't like people got up every day and thought, hey, things are going great in the country. There was probably fear and concern. What's going to happen next? Will we go to war? Is, are more people going to get assassinated? But in our story, it was an inside job. Now, I'm not making any statements on JFK, but those theories even also float around about it being an inside government job, and that makes it even more intense. Do you think Josiah, walking around the castle, would have wondered if there's someone who wanted to kill him? Do you think he would have wondered if he would be next for the assassin's target? So finally, in six 40 BC, a boy becomes king. Josiah became king at the age of eight. So we're going to go ahead and start reading. This is a long chunk, so I'm going to try to read bits to give us the context. But scripture begins with Josiah becoming uh, king, and that's going to be part one of our story. The boy who chose to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The boy that chose to do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 22 of 2 Kings, verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidiah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and he walked in all the way of his father David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Now, the first thing we notice in this text is that it gives an assessment of Josiah's character. He is a good guy. Not innately good, but he's made a good choice to follow the Lord, to not turn to the right or the left from the commands that God has given. And so here we see the assessment. His character is righteous. 
There's plenty of places in the Bible where the Bible will tell us the character, like the, the disposition, the attitude of one of the people in the story. If someone came up to you and told you the character of someone else, you'd have to decide something first. Can I trust the person who's telling me about the character of this other person? Sometimes they're trustworthy. Sometimes they're not. Eventually, we kind of learn who we can and can't trust. And so someone might come up to you and tell you how horrible this other person is, but you know that guy or you know that gal. And you know that they're pretty critical. But when the scripture speaks about a person's character, we know that it's certain and thorough. So Josiah was a godly young man, even at the age of eight years old. Now, the the text goes on to tell us that it's not just that the text is saying his character is right. There's actually evidence of this early on. So follow along in verse 3 of chapter 22. In the 18th year of King Josiah, now we're going to pause here. He's been king for quite a while. He's either 18 years old or it's the 18th year of his reign. The king sent to Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people, and let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord. Let them give it to the workmen who are on the house, at the house of the Lord, repairing the house." That, it is, that is, to the carpenters, and to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone, that they may repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. Now you may think, why does this demonstrate his righteousness? Like, why does this show that his character really is very good? Think about what a king would have to decide to repair a temple. How much money is this going to cost? How much time is it going to take? And how many of his subjects are going to want that to happen? Today, if our president spends money on something that we don't agree with, his popularity goes down. Now, I understand a king has total authority, and it doesn't matter if he's popular, but still, he would have to take that into account. But I think what's more shocking is this. What would Josiah have grown up being taught? He would have taught, been taught from his grandfather at the very end. He would have been taught to turn to Yahweh, the God of the Judeans. But his father never served the Lord God. So from his own father and from his father's court, he likely would have been shown, you need to worship Baal and Asherah and all these other gods of the pagan Canaanites. So then, why would Josiah make this choice? I actually don't know. The text is silent. The Bible doesn't say who influenced Josiah, or who taught him, or where he heard this. It simply says that here's a boy who was raised in a pagan environment, and what happened? He saw that he ought to follow the one true God. I think there's a message for us today. If a boy in this culture can turn from the wickedness and turn to the one true God, we ought to, in the New Testament time, be carrying the message of Jesus to the culture around us. It may seem dark. It may seem pagan. It may seem secular and atheistic. 
But if Josiah, amidst all of a very similar situation, can, be, can, can turn to the Lord, what, what about our culture? Can't God work in them too? So I would take that as a charge to us to go out and share the gospel, share the good news with the culture around us. You don't know what the Lord will do with that. So we, <clears throat> we have a boy who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, following God in his character. Our second part of our story is a transitional moment. Here we see an unexpected discovery and an uncommon response. An unexpected discovery and an uncommon response. Something is going to happen in chapter 22, verse 8, that's going to upend everything that's been going on in Judea. But there's a couple of questions we ought to ask about it. So, first of all, we'll notice this. The big discovery is this. Somebody finds the law. Let me go ahead and read the text here. Verse 8, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave it to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house. And they've delivered it into the hand of the workmen, who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary, secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And we'll pause here and ask a question. How do you lose the Bible? Now, they didn't have the whole Bible back then. What it was likely referring to was just the Torah or the first five books of the Bible. That would have been the Mosaic Law and the main text of the Israelites. There likely would have been some of the writings of David lying around. They would have had more than just that. But the book of the law at this point is lost. How does the temple, how do the priests of the Lord lose the law? It'd be like coming here and saying, we don't really know what God says because we don't have any Bibles. We've lost them all. Now, they wouldn't have had as many scrolls as we have Bibles. But how did that happen? Well, I have two ideas. My first idea is that perhaps it was because of the idolatry. At that time, false priests had come into the temple and false worship was going on in the temple. They're worshiping Baal, they're worshiping worshiping Asherah. And then um, Manasseh was a big fan of astrology or star worship from the Assyrians and he had brought that into the temple also. So when you would have gone to the temple, imagine coming to a church today and as you walk in here over here, we have a statue of Buddha. And there's a table with some sacrificial stuff for Buddha. And over here, we have a giant statue to Mary, and you have the altar, and you can do whatever. And then behind us, we have a various pantheon of Hindu gods. And you come to church here, and we go ahead and talk about those things, and make sacrifices of those, and whoever the preacher is doesn't open God's word. He just leaves it over here, and week in and week out, what's happening? We're worshiping pagan or false gods. And so nobody's using the Bible. And in fact, if I'm like a Buddhist or I'm a a Hindu or whatever, and I find a Bible, what am I going to do with it? Well, I'm probably going to put it away or hide it or maybe even throw it away. So maybe that's what happened with the law. Maybe the priests of Baal or the priests who followed Baal saw the law and thought, let's get rid of this. And maybe that's why it got put in a corner and people lost track of it. 
But the other idea is that perhaps it was just ignorance. If you're worshiping all the false gods, you're ignoring God's own word. And so maybe there were plenty of copies of the scroll lying around, but they just kept getting shoved into corners or hidden in closets or just set aside. It kind of makes me think about today. Many of our homes have multiple copies of God's word, but how often do we get into them? How often do we read them? How often do we study them? It might be something similar. So we see this unexpected discovery. They find the law. But after that, we notice a humbling uh, response, or an uncommon response. We see that Josiah humbles himself. So look at verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Now, we'll just stop here. I've never, ever ripped my shirt open or torn my clothes when I heard, heard bad news. Today, if we hear bad news and we're very heavily affected by it, we will perhaps faint or we'll sit down or we'll start crying. And then after that, we might wear dark clothes if we're mourning. But in this time period, when you were really, really sad, you would tear your clothes, often shave your head, and you'd often kind of walk around mourning for a while after that. So when the text says that happens, it's an indication of how much it bothered King Josiah. This was tragic to learn that his nation had so flagrantly been disobeying God. Verse 12 says, And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all of Judea, concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Hakiam and Akbar and Shaphan and Asiah went to hold of the prophetess, the wife of Shulam, or Shalom, the son of Tivka, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, and all the words of this book that are written in the king of Judah that he has read, because they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger, all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. So the prophetess says, it's worse than you imagine, Judean king and leaders, God is bringing wrath on Israel, such as the land has never seen, because of the wickedness of the kings and the priests. But there's some good news here. Look at verse 18. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, this is what you shall say to him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you just heard, that would have been the condemnation, because your heart was repentant, And because you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that you should become a desolation and a curse, and and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place." 
And they brought back the word to the king. So what we see is, first of all, Josiah humbles himself. We saw it in two ways in the text. Number one, he tore his clothes. It mentioned that in two places. But number two, he actually wept when he realized how greatly the nation had been sinning. God's response, however, is gracious to Josiah. Josiah had not prevented the disaster. This judgment is still going to come. But here God sees a person who realized his sin, realized that he's a sinner and he needs to turn and repent. And when he did that, God was faithful and gracious to Josiah. God said, you know what, Josiah? You have repented. You have believed. You have turned in humility. And so in this time, I will not bring the punishment while you're still alive. Josiah was shown grace that he would not see this judgment in his lifetime. Now, I can't help but wonder something about the character of God here. This judgment is certain. And yet, when God sees a humble and contrite heart, God stays the judgment and shows grace. What if the next generation... What if the king after Josiah had been just as penitent and humble? Do you think God would have stayed the judgment for another generation? And what if that king had been humble? And the next, and the next. Do you think God would continue to push the judgment because the hearts of the people were turning and asking forgiveness for their sins? I think of Nineveh. How wicked Nineveh was. And yet when they turned... God was, God was kind and gracious to them. We don't know. We don't know. But sometimes you can see a temptation in your own life when you read a passage like this and think, man, God's really being judgmental. He's really being harsh. Why is, he, why is this such a big deal? But I think what we should say is, look at how long he's been gracious to the kings of Judah. And now when full justice could have been poured out, God still showed even more grace just because one servant was humble and repented. I think that's the true character of God here, and that's what we ought to catch. Let's say a quick word about the nature of humility. We learn something about what it looks like to be humble when we look at the testimony of Josiah. Notice that the sin has been exposed to the sinners. Sinners are now seeing the sins that they've committed. But what happens? The humility is that the sinner accepts the judgment of God, agrees with it, and then demonstrates that agreement through his attitude and his behavior. What is absent, or what's missing from this story? Notice that Josiah doesn't make any protest. He reads the law, he sees how greatly the kingdom is sinned, but he doesn't protest. He doesn't say, hey, wait a second, that's not fair. I am not the one who made the choice to go into idolatry. That was my dad and my grandpa. Why am I judged for their sins? He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, hey, wait, I did sin, but I didn't know. No one told me this was wrong. Why should I be held accountable? My parents were pagans. That's what I was taught. What would have to change in someone so that they don't respond like that and they admit their sin? I really truly think God was doing a work in Josiah's heart. And I think he shows great humility. 
So that's our second part of our story. Let's go on to part three. How does Josiah respond? Part three, Josiah removes the idolatry from the land. So we're going to not be able to read all of chapter 23. It's really long, and we won't get it through at all. But we want to say something about the main idols that we're going to be reading about. First of all, we're going to, let's talk about Asherah. Asherah was the mistress of Baal. She was a fertility goddess. And her images were pornographic and very wicked. The people would have followed her to make sure their harvests were good and because they wanted Baal to be happy with them. Then you'll hear the name Baal. Baal was the major Canaanite god. He would have probably been the god. He was the lightning god, the sky god. He was the god over agriculture and the god over war for them in their belief. And he was a constant thorn in the sides of Israel throughout their history. Then you're going to hear the word Molech. If you, you read about this god elsewhere in the Old Testament, the name will be varied. So sometimes it will be Molech. Sometimes it will be Milcom. Sometimes it will be Chemosh. And the only reason the name changes is because of where you're talking about. So if you're in Ammon or if you're in Edom or if you're in Canaan, then different cultures have different names for this one god, but it's the same god all throughout. Uh, he was a god who was worshipped by the Canaanites, and the main way you worshipped him was child sacrifice. The altar that they used was called Tophet, which means to burn. And so this was where children were sacrificed. And then lastly, you're going to hear about the high places. This isn't a god per se, but one of the main ways that the, the pagans or the Canaanites would worship is they would go on top of a hill, a high place, and they would make their altar at the top of the hill or their little temple at the top of the hill, and that's where they would do all their pa- pagan practices. Sometimes those hills uh, also had groves of trees, and those would be sacred groves, and that's where people would go to do these wicked practices. So what we're going to do is we're going to read parts of 23, and we're going to stop and make comments. But before we begin, please understand, Josiah has already gotten his get-out-of-jail-free card. Please understand that. At this point, God has told Josiah, because you've humbled yourself, I'm not bringing the judgment in your lifetime. Think of the temptation that Josiah might have experienced then. Hey, I'm off the hook. No matter what I do now, God doesn't, he's not going to bring the judgment. He's promised. You know what? I'll just, I'll just do what I'm going to do. I'll do me and I'll live my way and I'll just let everyone be. You know what? There's nothing to prevent the judgment from coming and I've gotten grace. So I'm just going to do what's good for me and hang back and not ruffle any feathers. He could have done that. He even may have wrongly thought, he could have, thought, you know what, I'm, I'm fine. It doesn't matter what I do now because God said he won't bring the judgment, so I guess I can go live however I want. But he doesn't make that choice. He truly has turned to the Lord. Because even though he's been given a get-out-of-jail-free card, and even though he is experiencing grace and forgiveness, he still is going to try to cleanse the kingdom and get rid of the sin in the land makes me think of the way we New Testament Christians can think about sin wrongly sometimes. Well, I have, dis- I have recognized my sin in the past. I have been convicted of it, and I have turned to God and asked him to save me from my sins and forgive me of them. And now I'm a Christian, and now I'm going to heaven. 
And sometimes we can wrongly think that sin's not really that big of a deal. I'm forgiven. Who cares? But looking at Josiah, maybe that's not how I ought to be. If I'm forgiven, that should be fuel to keep resisting sin and keep walking on the path of God. And I think that's unique about this section. Josiah turns from sin, and even when he's off the hook, he continues to follow the Lord. And I think that's a, a, a testimony and an example that we should think about often and consider turning and following ourselves. So what we see next is a full commitment repentance. This is what it looks like to turn away from sin. For a full 20 verses, the text is discussing all of the things that Josiah is going to remove. There's two, I'm going to start reading. There's two more thoughts. Number one, look at all the things he gets rid of. Look at all the wicked pagan practices he destroys. And number two, look at how many there were. This is Israel, people. This is Judea. This is like Jerusalem. This was David and Solomon's land. It has been overrun with idolatry. This is not like there was one idol temple on the corner. It's everywhere. It's really bad. All right, so let's start. Chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went to the house of their Lord, and with him the men of Judah, and all of the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests, and the prophets, and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant that were written in the book, and all the people joined in the covenant. So at this point, the people and the king are repenting. They're committing to God to say, you know what, I'm going to follow you, God, wholeheartedly. Nothing's going to stop me. It's going to be all my strength, all my soul, all my might. Does this sound like any great commandments we've heard of in the New Testament? It does, doesn't it? Hmm. I wonder where that came from. All right, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for the hosts of heaven. So there were vessels, objects, items, small idols probably, and they ripped all of them out of the temple, and they made a big, big pile of them, and they burned them outside of Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and they carried the ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burnt incense to Baal and the sun and the moon and the constellations and the hosts of heaven. So there were priests that the kings had said, your job is to be at this high place and your job is to be at this high place and your job is to be in this town and you are to sacrifice to Baal and Asherah and all the star gods. And Josiah and the priests went through the land and deposed them and pulled them out of their priesthoods and wouldn't let them do that anymore. Verse 6, And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside of Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and he burned it at the brook Kidron. And then he beat it to dust, and he cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. 
And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for Asherah. And he brought all of the priests out of the cities of Judah, and he defiled the high places where the priests had made their offerings from Geba to Beersheba. That's from like the whole of the country. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were there at the entrance of the gates of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on the left and the right of the gate. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, or Topheth, which is in the valley of Hinnom, the son of Hinnom, so that no one might burn his son or daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses of the king that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of the Lord by the cha- chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire and the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he pulled down and broke into pieces and cast to dust into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were the east of Judah. Now, we're going to continue on here, and he continues to rout all the gods, and it's, it's very, very thorough. So what we want to see is that when he turned to the Lord, he was thorough in addressing the sin in the country. There is a little spot here in verse, 19, or verse 17 where he finds a monument set up to a former prophet of Yahweh, the Lord God. Now, this prophet had come to this place and said, this is what God's going to do one day to judge wickedness. And he died, and they buried him there. And at this time, Josiah has gotten so thorough that he's ripping open tombs of false prophets, bringing it out, and burning their bones up. But here, he sees that it was a man of God, and he says, don't. Don't disturb his bones. Leave it there. Almost a monument to that his prophecy was correct. I have to say, if I am trying to clean out the country of idolatry, I'm going to pull down temples, I'm going to stop cultural things like maybe television shows and movies that describe it, maybe like, I'm going to do a lot of those things. But Josiah is so thorough that he literally goes to the graves of the false prophets, rips out their bones, and burns them up. I mean, he's, this is a really thorough treatment of sin. I think that's a, an example to us. How thoroughly do we approach sin when God reveals it in our life? Is there something God's brought up before? And you've dealt with it, but you're not really interested in dealing with it thoroughly and fully. Jesus says that if your hand causes you to sin, what should you do with your hand? You should cut it off. Now, it's metaphorical. I don't think he really wants you to harm the temple that's his temple. But the point is, if something causes you to sin, fully get rid of it. That's why many men my age and younger that I know uh, don't have any unfiltered internet on their phones because it's just an avenue for temptation. That's why many people won't have cable or they don't go this way through town because it goes by something that used to be a temptation. That thorough treatment of sin is not uh, crazy. It's not fundamentalist. It's not hyper. It's not too much. It's actually just what the Bible expects. It's the example of Josiah in our life. All right, part four. Let's carry on. Part four. Not only does he remove the evil, 
but he restores the worship to the people. He removes the idolatry, but he also restores the worship to the people. This is sort of the difference between you have a list of don'ts over here, like don't do this, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal. Those are negative commands. But on this side, there's this other list we sort of forget about sometimes. It's easy for me to go out and commit a crime or commit some sin and realize, oh, I violated God's law, I've sinned, I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to stop doing those things. Stop the don'ts. Sometimes we get fully focused on this, though, and all of our life is about what don't I need to do? What do I need to stop doing? But on this other side, there's another list. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, and all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Go, therefore, and share the gospel with all nations, baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you forever, even to the end of the age. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Bear with one another. Hope with one another. Weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. There's all kinds of positive, uh, direct commands to obey rather than just prohibitions to keep away from. But somehow we gravitate toward the list of the don'ts. And so sometimes you can be not don'ting anything. You're don'ting all these, I'm not murdering, I'm not doing this. You still get this vague sense that like the Lord's convicting you of a sin. So sometimes I'll sit down to read the Bible and I'll be stuck over here and I can't find anything. Well, I haven't murdered anyone this week. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. But it's still like something's off. Like I'm, I'm feeling this conviction in my conscience. A practice that's really helped me is to turn to the positive commands that God gives me. Well, who am I living for? Who do I love the most? Do I love God or do I love myself? Have I been loving to my neighbor? Have I been sharing the gospel? Have I been teaching others to obey? Have I been praying for my believers? Have I been bearing with one another? Man, this, we kind of like to look at this, even though we don't like to look at this, but we just somehow forget about these positive aspects over here. The former part, part three, is Josiah saying, we've got to get rid of all this stuff. Part four is all about what God has commanded them to do that he's reinstituting. So turn to verse 21 in chapter 23. And the king commanded to all the people, keep the Passover of the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover has been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was kept in Jerusalem. Now here, what it's saying is Passover, I mean obviously during David and Solomon and Saul, there would have been the Passover. But Passover had, been fallen, had fallen out of being practiced or celebrated because of the horrible sins that Manasseh and Ammon had brought on the country. So when it says Josiah brought it in and no other Passover had been celebrated, what I'm saying is this was like the Passover to remember. The Passover of Passovers. It was grand and glorious and fully obedient. It was just like it looked like, everything that it said. And it was a wonderful time. Now, I can't help but think, um, why start with the Passover? Why not the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle or something else? 
There's a couple of thoughts. Number one, it could have been the right time of year to do this. It could have been that the Passover was the next uh, feast for them to follow. That very likely could have been it. But I do wonder if it's not slightly also, I don't know how to say it. That's the celebration in Israel. What does the Passover celebrate? The Exodus, where God took his people out of a pagan world and saved them and brought them into the land of blessing and gave them a law to guide them that they would be his God and he would be, or they would be his people and he would be their God. I kind of wonder if this isn't like a big reset. We're getting back to what God has commanded our nation to do. We Israelites are going to be Israelites. And not only does he reinstitute the Passover, he continues to purge paganism. In 24, it says, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book, that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all that the law of Moses, nor did any arise after him like that. Wow. Man, what a great story of a king who said, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to bow the knee to the Lord, and I'm going to submit to him. And then look at the great thing that he worked. Now, like every good story, we have an epilogue in ours. We see a couple of things. Number one, we see his character confirmed, and we just read that in verse 25. There's no king that's like him. And I think that the legacy here is a legacy of loving the Lord. What does it look like when you love the Lord? When you love the Lord, it looks like hearing his word, turning and submitting to him, and then following after him and not turning to the right or to the left. So that's the first epilogue. There's the, the character is confirmed. It was a legacy of a loving the Lord. But the second aspect to our, our epilogue is that we see an anger that endures. And this is a just God who's perfect in holiness. Look at verse 26. Still, the Lord did not turn from, his burning, from the burning of his great wrath, by which his anger was kindled against Judah, because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will also remove Judah out of my sight, as I have removed Israel, and I will cast off this city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, and the house of which I have said, my name shall be there. So even in the midst of this, the judgment was too great, the sin was too wicked, and God must enact justice. And then the last epilogue is the good king who dies. Verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, the king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria uh, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went out to meet him, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo, and as soon as he saw him. And the servants carried him dead in the chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him with his, in his own tomb. And, all, and the people of the land took Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. Now, there's some discussion if you read, um, was it right for Josiah to go out and try to fight Pharaoh Necho? Because there's some question about that. We're not going to even talk about that today. But 
overall, Josiah is the most, one of the most godly kings we've ever seen. So what should we do now? Where do we go next? So let's talk about when the story hits home. We should let Josiah's life influence our own lives. So I've just got five points of application for you. The first question that I think we ought to ask after reading about a godly life like this is where's the word of God uh, in your life right now? Where is it? Do you reject God's word outright? When it speaks of sin, but the therapist speaks of a disease, who do you listen to? When it speaks of holiness, but the sitcom speaks of happiness, whose voice is more influential? Have you listened to other voices that point uh, to the word of God? Do you, do you hear it preached every week? But is it still essentially lost to you? It can be very easy, no matter who the preacher is, for his voice to begin to drone in our ears. It's not a tone that I'm talking about. It's not the fact that I or whoever else is up here talks without ending. But it's the fact that the voice is just a droning in our soul. Has the word of God had an effect on you? Secondly, do you ignore God's word? Does the business of life crowd out your times of nourishment in God's word? Would you say with me that God's word is the most precious thing that he's given to us aside from his son? But then looking at your week, do you spend any time feeding on it? Is it that perhaps right now, God is calling you back to his word? If God is calling you right now back to his word, how would you respond if you want to respond like Josiah? The answer is to humble yourself and to turn and to follow the Lord. Secondly, when God does bring sin up in your life, how do you respond? When someone's reading the Bible or when you're sitting at church or when you talk with a friend, what happens when someone points out a sin that they see in your life? Do you get angry? Do you get embarrassed and try to change the subject? Do you get a little defensive and just try to explain yourself? Or do you get bitter and begin to distance yourself from that person or that relationship? Josiah is our example of how we should respond when we see sin. We are to humble ourselves. We are to admit our sins. We are to turn to the Lord, not away from the Lord. The question I think you ought to ask yourself is, has God shown you a sin today and is he asking you to humble yourself before him? Thirdly, do you see a pattern of turning away from sin in your life? This is probably one of the biggest points, I think, in this section. Do you see a pattern where by habit you're turning consistently, not perfectly, away from sin? This was the, one of the biggest examples of the character of Josiah that showed he really had turned to God. He thoroughly, continuously, and in his case, extremely, turned away from sin. How about you? Do you see an example of that in your own life? Sometimes you can have that example and then have a period of time where you've just kind of given up and quit. Don't give up. Be like Josiah. Follow his example 
That's what it looks like to turn to the Lord. It's a never giving up in our turning from sin. Number four, do you see areas where God's calling you to obey his commands? Josiah did not only remove sin, but he reinstituted the worship that God commanded. Often, we're better at seeing where we rebel against God's prohibition, the thou shalt not commands, than we are to seeing the things that we're supposed to positively obey, the thou shalt commands. But remember, it is just as important to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength as it is to keep away from anger and malice and deception. And then one last thought, and this is where I'm speaking to those in the room who are younger. Please understand that Josiah was eight years old. He was eight. You don't have to be a big kid or an adult to decide to follow the Lord. You can be eight years old. You can be 80 years old. It doesn't matter how old you are. You can turn. You can choose right now to admit your sin and turn to follow the Lord just like Josiah did. Well, it's been nice to have the counterbalance to the life of Manasseh, hasn't it? Manasseh was really doom and gloom. But man, look at, what it, look at the difference between Manasseh's life and Josiah's. Look at the, the havoc that is wreaked by a life of someone who decides to only live the way that they want to and abandon the Lord. And look at, the, look at how wonderful and good it was when someone chose to turn to God. If the Lord's working in your heart right now and there's an area that you think God is asking you to turn, just remember that can be it for you too. Following the Lord is great. It's hard. It can be painful. And it's not problem-free. There is suffering. But ultimately, it truly is what is best. Would you consider turning to the Lord today? Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, you are so kind to us. You are so gentle and forgiving. You, Lord, care about us. You are gracious to us. You're kind. I pray, Lord, today for those of us who are here who perhaps, God, you've worked in our heart or worked in our soul. If there's a sin that you've brought up in our minds, please, God, I pray that you'd strengthen us in the Spirit to respond humbly and to turn from that sin. But, Father, perhaps it's not a a hugely glaring uh, overt sin, Father. Perhaps we've just been lazy spiritually. Perhaps we're just uh, self-centered and pleasure-seeking. Perhaps we just want an easy, comfortable life where we get to do what we want until we die, God, and then we get to go be with you. Father, I pray, Lord, that if that's us and you're convicting us that we ought to give over our life to you, God, that we would respond the way Josiah did. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for being a God who loves us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.